This episode of Working Lunch is fueled by the bizarre restaurant, Franklin, one of Jose Andreas's crown jewels uh, in Washington, D.C., Mr. Social Cause, Mr. You know, world-renowned you know, activist. And it looks like his employees are trying to unionize that restaurant in Washington, D.C. What in the heck is going on, Franklin? That's right. And he has voluntarily recognized unions in some of his other locations. So he may choose to do that here. He's definitely in a uh, kind of tough spot. He's close with President Biden. This is right down the street from the White House. Nancy Pelosi nominated him this week to for the Nobel Peace Prize. So it'll be interesting to see how he kind of navigates this. Uh, man, I was not aware of this restaurant, Joe. I don't know if they'll let me through the door, to be honest with you. But as I read about it and read about the menu, this looks like a, a must-do on the next trip to D.C. If I can, if I can get a table. I mean, it looks like a standard D.C. two and a half hour, two hundred dollar lunch type menu. I mean, it's 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 involved right in the Waldorf Astoria Hotel, a mere five blocks from the White House, right on Pennsylvania Avenue. The so, old the old Trump Hotel. Yeah. Yeah. The old right post there. office building. The old post office building. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So uh, super interesting. Uh, wouldn't that be ironic if a bunch of labor discord and maltreatment of employees uh, comes up to tarnish Mr. Andreas's reputation? That would be ironic, would it not? It's definitely going to be uh, he's going to have to navigate it. But, you know, again, uh, some of his other restaurants have organized into a union and he's recognized them and bargained with them. And so maybe he can he can pull it off here. The, <clears throat> the challenge in this location is Bloomberg is reporting is that the Waldorf staff, you know, which are unionized, have a lot of uh, fancy benefits and the restaurant workers are looking over and going, hey, what the heck? We, we should get that, too. So we'll see how this plays out. Yeah. One thing, Franklin, uh you know, uh, Align Public Strategies is known for its key lime pies uh, that we uh, send around a little bit at Christmas time on the menu. So the next time you're in D.C. or I am, the key lime pie Jose's Way is on that tasting menu. So we might just stop in there for a, for a key lime pie slice, see how they measure up against our Florida key lime pie. But on that very tasty note, let's do the show. Can I help you? We need to talk about your flair. From the home office of Align Public Strategies in downtown Orlando, Florida, this is Working Lunch coming up on the podcast. This week, the Associated Press published the results of a two-year investigation into alleged exploitation of prison labor, primarily in the ag industry. The report not only documents the food production process, it follows the products through the supply chain and names retailers, grocery stores, industry suppliers, and even some QSR brands that quote-unquote benefit from prison labor. We talk about the possible ramifications for brands both outside and inside the company. And some Republican agriculture commissioners are turning up the heat on ESG, pushing back on companies that are pursuing climate goals. Could these pro-business elected officials be intentionally putting brands in a legal bind where complying with federal and California law puts you in violation of their laws? We'll take a look. We'll talk about that and wrap it up with a legislative scorecard. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the pod. I'm Joe Kefauver, along with my line public strategies partner, Franklin Coley. And Mr. Coley, seems like 
news story has evolved this week that we kind of saw a tease on a couple of months ago in December, but the Associated Press this week released the results of a two-year study into basically the, the agriculture industry and its leveraging of prison labor in many areas of the country, labor that they say is not adequately paid, adequately protected, it's exploited. Uh, if you don't sign up for these work details, you have a tougher time inside. Uh, and Franklin, they not only were taking you know Archer Daniels Midland and other companies to task, they kind of navigated back through the supply chain and went kind of upstream and named a lot of end users, retailers, Walmart was involved in that conversation, uh, grocery stores, and a number of leading uh, quick service restaurant brands. Mr. Coley, what do you make of this? Yeah, I think Angola, which obviously everyone knows Angola was part of the part of the feature here in this this big report. You know, a lot of this stuff is so far down the supply chain that a lot of brands probably have no idea what's going on there and and what's happening. There have been incidents, and I'm like scrolling through our podcast now. There have been incidents where there has been more direct connectivity between restaurant brands and prison labor in the past. I, I'm thinking it's like episode 30-ish, you know, we're in 300s now where we talked about this, but we have talked about this before and some of the pitfalls associated with it. We have seen brands get caught up in these campaigns related to prison labor before. Uh, look, it's, you know, it's a sticky wicket increasingly, you know, and we'll maybe talk about it in another segment. Increasingly, brands are expected to be responsible for their supply chains. That's always been true to some degree, but there's increased scrutiny on that. And this isn't necessarily a great look when, you know, prison labor is, you know, a substantial part of one brand's supply chain or with the agriculture industry more broadly. Well, Mr. Coley, do you think this has ramifications in the consumer marketplace? I, I, I don't know right now that it does. I, I do think this is kind of an inside baseball thing, but at the moment, but I, I do think it could. I mean, look, we've seen Coalition of Immokalee Workers and these other campaigns where they look at supply chain abuses and and issues and they bring it, they make it tough for the corporate brand. They, they put it on the corporate brand. I think that's what companies should be looking for in this space. And the other piece of this, the, the bigger piece is, you know, we've talked for months, if not longer, and we'll talk about it on the scorecard today, that as you know, restaurants look for labor within their four walls. You know, there has been a push to open up access to labor in a bunch of states. And, you know, one, one person's reentry opportunity or second chance opportunity or opportunity for youth and young people to get involved in a workplace is labor advocates, prison labor or slave labor or exploitation of children. So, you know, can there be prison programs where there's important job skills building? Can there be prison programs where we're preparing 
for reentry to 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 build skills and be able to reenter the American economy and stabilize ones. Of course, there can. Can there be youth development programs in restaurants, in retail, where we're bringing in young people that may not be going to, you know, college or community college, and and preparing them for the workforce? Of course, there can. But those programs can also be abused. So it's it's a fine line to walk. I think we've said it before. If you're going to push in that space, you have to walk the walk. You have to be intentional about really providing opportunity. And that's the same thing here. You know, this could come back on brands. Quite frankly, brands should be in this space and using it as a as a, a positive point and attribute being involved in reentry programs. But just like student or or you know, young person labor, it can be a big negative as well, just depending on how it's executed and managed. Yeah, I think in terms of you know consumer traffic, I think it's kind of a non-issue at least at this point, and probably for the foreseeable future. Where I do see uh, some vulnerability for uh, brands is in the employee space, i.e., you know, and where you know, in a couple different ways. Wow, I'm on the same level as that's, that's what you think of me. I'm on the same level as a convicted felon. Uh, and you know, you 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 really want to pay me even less than you do now. You'd rather me be replaced by by somebody like that. Great, thanks a lot, employer. Or you know, maybe they believe the headlines and it's all about exploitation and all this, and they have a different view of their employer and the value system and culture of their company. Uh, from an HR perspective, that 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 kind of makes me you know, if the story were to grow, that, that, that's that's what kind of comes to mind that there may be a little bit of a conversation that needs to be had internally. I think the SCIU and some of the other labor unions agree with me. They have jumped into this space uh, and are ringing the bell, you know, trying to further their case that, you know, employers are bad and employees are being exploited. Any thoughts on that, Mr. Coley? Yeah, I, I think, I don't know that anyone right now is this is on anyone's radar, but this is one of these issues. It could continue to bubble up over time and it could be problematic in the future. And there's just zero doubt that brands are expected to have uh, a better handle in their supply chain every day. And this is one of those things that needs to be on public affairs practitioners list of issues that they need to be talking to the other members of the C-suite and saying, hey, are we on top of this? Are we paying attention to this? Do we have our arms around this? This should be one of the issues that we are, we're kind of, is on our list that we are, we're watching for and we are trying to get a handle on. And there's a, lot of, there's a lot of items on that list, but this should be on that list. I don't think this is necessarily a five alarm fire at this point, I but it, it's, it's an issue that, that folks should be paying attention to. Yeah, I think people, you know, inside their, their organizations ought to just take a time out and, and kind of see if they're exposed in this space and just do some some quiet internal uh, understanding of, of the issue and how it relates to their operations and their brand reputation and so forth, just preparing themselves for potential rainy day sometime in the future. So uh, good stuff. And as, as you just said, Mr. Cole, we will continue to track. Switching gears, Franklin, uh, I think a lot of people know, especially in Southern states, a lot of Northern states don't have this particular job. A lot of Southern Midwestern states do. Mr. Coy, what does an agriculture commissioner do? Yeah, oversees the agriculture sector, Joe, generally. That's a profound, profound response, my friend. 
generally now it's very they're, they're often their responsibilities are often different state by state but obviously agriculture's kind of a, a big piece of it and you know you just think about USDA and, and what they do at the federal level and a lot of times those are going to be the responsibilities at the at the state level it is uh, I I almost feel like most state agriculture offices are about as much of a resource as it is kind of a enforcement and oversight agency because there's so many state and federal programs um, that promote and support agriculture for a variety of different important and and very good reasons and so I almost feel like Joe that it is uh it's almost a support and, and kind of collaborative agency as much as it is uh, anything else. Uh, but obviously different per state, but usually is, is overseeing agriculture uh, in that state. The reason I bring this up is uh, this week, 12 Republican agriculture commissioners sent a letter to a number of banking institutions, kind of uh, wrapping them on the knuckles on ESG and saying, don't bring that that show into our state. You, Mr. Coley, made the point that, wow, uh, puts, a, puts a company kind of in a bind. If they're going to comply with California's new climate law, then they may be in violation of a potential law being passed in Georgia or Louisiana or Florida. What, what say you, my friend? Well, touching back to the last segment, Joe, and continuing the through line, corporate brands are expected increasingly to be responsible for their own supply chains. And that is certainly the case with the new climate disclosures in California and the ones under consideration at the federal level. And we have similar climate disclosures, you know, around the world, the EU, that require these scope three analysis and reporting where you're going to be responsible for down your supply chain. At the same time, Joe, we have talked exhaustively on this podcast about Republican efforts to push back on the ESG agenda. ESG has now become a, uh, a potty word. You know, most companies have rebranded under, you know, responsible practices or impact, social impact or something like that. Um, and that's been going on for some time. What, what is slightly new to your lead in there, Joe, is to have agriculture secretaries now weighing into this space. And Joe, the language here, I mean, I've been following this issue pretty closely for some time. I don't remember seeing language this kind of strident, where we're kind of in a hold my beer scenario where everyone is like falling over one another to be, you know, the, the loudest, toughest voice in the room. I'm just going to read this one quote. This is from a Fox Business Rundown. We will not bend the knee to the failed left-wing climate agenda of the United Nations. That's a Georgia agriculture official, agriculture secretary being quoted. This letter went to top executives of the major banks. But basically what it said is the pursuit of like net zero policies, it will be devastating to agriculture. You can't run an agriculture operation and you know, electrified equipment and solar. And so they are going to push back full force on this, on this agenda. Joe, I think that is problematic. Back to your lead. Uh, if you're reporting out in California, 
and you're asking your Georgia chicken suppliers to provide you climate data, impact data, greenhouse gas inventory data, and the closest official in the state of Georgia that they work with, you know, the ag commissioner is telling them not to do it. I think that is uh, intentionally going to create problems and issues for brands moving forward. And this is going to be a difficult, this is going to continue to be a difficult space for brands to navigate. This is just kind of a whole new front in this conversation. I like how they chose ironically the term bend the knee for this. What they're actually doing is bending the knee to Republican primary voters because all of them want to run for higher office at some point. So I thought it was an ironic twist. So this is just Republican elected officials in the South jumping on the anti-ESG wagon. Is that, is that really the headline here, Franklin? I mean, that's a headline, but um, th- this is happening in a bunch of different spaces. Ag secretaries, CFOs, there's new legislation you know, under consideration in, in Florida that targets, you know, municipalities and metro, metropolitan planning organizations. So this kind of ESG language has trickled down. Initially, it was just commercial banking, then it spread to retail banking, and now it's trickling down into everything. And so I think that's the the subheadline is, yeah, this is Repub's trying to score points on ESG, but the subheadline is, like, this is spreading across everything. Um, Repubs are trying to kind of throw sand in the gears of all of this, every aspect. And specifically, some of the legislation being written is would prevent uh, the pursuit of IIJA funds, infrastructure funds, right? Because it's including language in there um, that you can't do any planning around climate related you know, but Franklin, are Republicans pro business? Well, I mean, I think they, I, I think the agriculture secretaries here would assert that they are the, the language that is typically used. This is a press release. This is not, you know, legal language, but the legal language that they would use is that no non pecuniary factors can be taken into consideration. And, and what they would say is that they are being pro-business, that, you know, you should only be able to uh, account for pecuni- pecuniary factors. You can't take into social, you know, and these 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 other factors that don't directly relate to return on investment. Um, so putting so- Walmart, Bloomin Brands and Darden in a legal conundrum that by complying with a law in, in one state, they could be violating a law in another state is pro-business. Joe, you have to take that to the to the Georgia Secretary of Agriculture, my friend. Yeah, I'm sure. Like most of this, the policy outcome is not what uh, what they're after. They're after the 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 applause lines at rallies and so forth. But it is it is yet another issue. If your you know corporate uh, organization this 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 growing the legality of this trend should be something on your radar. Your lawyers should be looking at this to see what potentiality, where the law, you know, what, what the legal process would be if these states were to set up a situation where complying with California's climate law puts you in violation of Louisiana's agriculture law. Uh, tough road to hoe, but that's why they make the big bucks. In, yeah. You know? And just, and just to be clear, this, this is super intentional. Uh, this oh, is yeah. Yeah. designed to be just that. This is sand in the gears 
of these net zero commitments. This is sand in the gears of the California climate reporting. That is very much uh, the intent here. So it is intentionally creating landmines in this space that brands are going to have to navigate. And as I said, we'll be here to report on it as it, as it develops. Thanks, pal. It's time for the Legislative Scorecard. We're going around the country and update you on the latest legislative and regulatory developments in Franklin. Let's start with wages. Uh, my home state of Maryland, big day yesterday in a Senate committee on the legislation to eliminate the tip credit. Marshall Weston and his uh, mighty army continue their march and appeared in a Senate committee and really kind of, I think, I think it's fair to say dominated uh, the, the Senate committee. Overwhelming turnout, the server side of the argument kind of carried the day, I think. The press coverage uh, has been good, has continued to build off of what we saw in Montgomery County, and we are fighting the good fight in Maryland. The one thing that I worry about slightly, they've got this provision in here requiring the state labor commissioner to establish this high road kitchen program, which is this you know ridiculous one fair wage thing. I worry, Joe, that some like compromise knockdown bill that at the end of session that doesn't include the elimination of the tip credit may still allow for the establishment of this program. And I think we need to kill that too. So I'm a little like, I could see that being like some compromise that some legislators in the state Capitol would want to, you know, give a little, give a little carrot over to one fair wage to keep them happy. So that, that I'm watching that piece. I want to see that piece killed as well. Yeah, that's good counsel. Our neighbors across the river in Virginia uh, appear to have taken that we knew their tip credit elimination bill had absolutely no chance of passage. Um, the governor clearly going to veto that. So the Democrats are just running it through the process just to check some boxes. But they have taken their tip credit the bill, amended it, and um, passed a committee yesterday, as a matter of fact, or earlier this week, I should say, to go to a study committee. Uh, and study the effects of tip wage elimination and yeah, wage and violations job. and all that kind study of stuff. So maybe Maryland goes, my point is maybe Maryland goes that direction and does a quote unquote study that'll get shelved and no one ever hear from again. Study group where legislation goes to die. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So kudos to uh, the Restaurant Association of Maryland for uh, a hearing room stacked yesterday with uh, restaurant tours, uh, not only talking about their personal situations and why this bill would be detrimental to them, but correcting the fallacy of a lot of the, the arguments that one fair wage uh, puts forth in front of elected officials. So kudos to your point, Marshall Weston, Melvin Thompson, uh, for a, you know no vote was taken. The fight goes on, but man, they they did a good job in uh, representing the industry yesterday. And kudos to Eric Terry and his group in Virginia. Uh, for getting that tip credit elimination bill out of the way. Uh, I don't even think this study will go forward in Virginia as well, but uh, we'll see what happens. Frankly, we reported on Oklahoma a few weeks ago that the uh, chamber out there, and I think it's the Farm Bureau, were going to court, going to go to the Supreme Court, try to invalidate that ballot initiative. They had a hearing this week in front of the Supremes. Yep. And that's about all. They they made oral arguments. They're trying to kill this $15 an hour measure before it gets to the ballot. 
man, if it makes it to the ballot and passes in Oklahoma, Oklahoma. Um, no, I remember it, you know, we've, we've seen it in Arkansas. We've seen it in Alaska. We've seen a lot of these red states. I had been 15. I can't remember where it's passed at. It hasn't passed at 15 in, I mean, it has in Florida, but I don't know. Oklahoma's a lot redder than Florida. Those other jurisdictions have been like 12 and 13ers. Anyway, we'll see what happens there. But yeah, they're going to try to knock it down in court so it doesn't go to the ballot. Franklin, one state that it will not go to $15 an hour, it was decided this week, is in South Dakota. That's right. And they, I'm pretty sure, had a ballot measure in the past couple of years that moved it up, but not obviously to 15. Um, yep. No, not going to make it through the process there. Shocker, Joe. Yeah. Shocking that uh, South Dakota is not going to move the minimum wage. But uh, anyway, Franklin, some big news actually uh, on the paid leave front uh, coming out of Washington, D.C. People in Washington, D.C. talking about policy. I know it's shocking. What happened on paid leave uh, on the Hill this week? Well, we keep just getting this kind of swirling bipartisan consensus around uh, paid leave. I mean, we've been talking about it for years that it feels like one of these issues where it's just slowly, quietly happening in the background. And one of these days, like the politics are going to line up and, you know, something's going to pop out and it's going to be kind of like criminal justice reform happened at the end of the Trump administration. Like you didn't. Nobody was really expecting it. And that that congressional term is just like all of a sudden the dynamics lined up and it like popped out because behind the scenes, you know, there have been a lot of discussion for a long time. That feels like where we are on, on paid leave. So um, legislation was introduced that would provide a partial tax credit for those that purchase or subsidize their employees paid leave. So. This is similar to stuff we've seen at the state level. This seems to be where the conversation is heading. This has been proposed previously. Some version of this has been proposed previously in Congress. I think it was Marco Rubio forever ago that was really strong in the tax credit when the Dems were pushing like a mandate. So, yeah, Joe, we got it. It's got some momentum. Um, this, This seems to be where the puck is going. Yeah, and, you know, one thing I one, one thing I like about it is, you know, and, and I don't think that the Democratic purists will like it, but it's really bringing private market forces into play on the issue. You know, what, what what's going to happen is, you know, there'll be you know paid leave insurance, insurance companies will get involved, and while that will be, you know, who pays, you know, to be determined, but the reality of the marketplace is. Good employers that are competing for good workers are going to end up offering that as a benefit de facto, and the poorer employees uh, won't. And so the you know the, the ones that offer it will get the better employees, and the ones that don't will not. So uh, it'll it'll go to the marketplace where I think de facto it'll solve a big chunk of the paid leave problem, uh, much to the chagrin of Democratic activists who have been you know big on this issue for twenty years. They're, they're, the Republicans are, are looking like they're coming into a marketplace solve for this, and it's got to be driving the you know labor community batshit uh, on this. But uh, interesting to see what happened, Franklin. You know what, what what Angus King and Deb Fisher are doing and modeling it after a bunch of states. Kentucky, top of that list. Uh, I think their kind of privatizing of the paid leave issue passed out of the passed out of the House this week. That's right. You got it. 
unanimously, Joe, actually is a 92 to one vote. So now it's headed to the Senate. So, um, yep, you got it. It's again, building more and more. I, I, I'm old enough to remember when like a 401k was like kind of a novel thing. It was like a new novel thing. And like the old school pension retirement was still the dominant form of retirement account. And it feels like that's where we are with this. This is kind of a new novel thing, but this, you know, the 401k is certainly the the dominant form of building retirement equity now. And it feels like that's where this conversation is heading to. Franklin, uh, in the, you know, talking about prison labor earlier and kind of employers falling in the traps and shooting themselves in the foot, uh, not to be outdone, our home state of Florida has passed the House of Representatives, passed legislation allowing, taking a lot of restrictions off of 16 and 17 year olds entering the workforce in terms of, in terms of proximity to school days, in terms of how many hours during the school week, uh, passed the House on a pretty wide margin. Yeah, I, th- I feel like we reported in Alabama is doing something similar. There's, there's New York or D.C. is doing something similar, too. And the immigrant community has uh, risen up and basically because it is preventing like familial connections from working in the establishment. But yeah, Joe, to your point, this would allow 16 and 17 year old children to work more than 40 hours a week, um, allowing homeschool and virtual school teams to work in the middle of the day during the school day. And it would allow, I think there's a time thing too. So you can work more than eight hours a day between 6 a.m. and 11 p.m. Yeah, I mean, we're we're lowering the barrier to entry for youth. This can be a great thing or this can turn on us and bite us, right? So if we're being good stewards of these young people's time and energy and opportunity and we're upskilling them and we're capturing folks that would not go through a traditional education path. Fantastic. This program is being abused, then shame on us. And it's going to come back to bite us. And that's what we can say for, for most of these, most of these that we're seeing kind of pop up around the country. If I'm going to Vegas, I know I'm going to put my money, my friend. Yeah. I mean, look, I think the corporate brands, the corporate owned entities are going to be much better in this space generally than some of the kind of unaffiliated smaller operators or, you know, that aren't going to necessarily understand and appreciate uh, the, the issues at play here. But, you know, we'll, we'll see how all this kind of plays out. Franklin, I think the uh, executive team switching to labor activism, I think the executive team at Trader Joe's are all now driving brand new Teslas provided for free by Elon Musk. What's going on with Trader Joe's? That's funny. So Trader Joe's is the latest company, uh, and there's there's a there's a big pile of them now. It's it's Tesla and Elon Musk, but it's also Starbucks um, and others that are challenging essentially the constitutionality of the NLRB. You know, we've everyone's seen the Supreme Court and how it rules and how it wants to curtail the reach and scope of federal agencies. And NLRB, as we've reported on this podcast many, many times, is on that list and in the crosshairs. And so Trader Joe's is the latest to try to advance a case up to the Supreme Court that may be the case that provides the perfect set of circumstances for the Supreme Court to, uh, you know, 
wrap the NLRB on the knuckles and curtail kind of their their expansive powers. Um, so we'll see how this plays out. We're watching all these cases. Um, they will all be super interesting. And uh, we will be reporting them out the second they break. Speaking of break and breaking some eggs, our friends at Waffle House just received notice they're being sued in a class action by some servers saying that their tipping policy is leaving them with sub minimum wage wages. What's going on at Waffle House? They are under the scrutiny of the Union of Southern Service Workers, kind of this SEIU uh, front group that came out of the Fight for 15 that is uh, organizing workers in, in the Southeast. And so they're facing a lot of scrutiny now. The, the, whole, the whole way this has kind of gone down is a little weird and hard to follow. So just bear with me. But, you know, basically they're saying they, they violated the tip sharing policy. So all those tips are supposed to go in and obviously supposed to equal the minimum wage, $7.25, I think, in this, in this case, Tennessee. And the suit claims that the employees spent 20% of their work doing non-tip tasks. During that time, they were docked the same reduced rate if they were serving customers. So basically, the tipped wage was being applied for non-tipped work. We know under the new, the new rules, that's a big no-no. And so this thing, you know, as we've seen, these things can add up quickly where there's a small error or miscalculation. And Franklin, the White House is on board with this deal, correct? I mean, if if it got to their desk as it, in its current form, the president would sign it, correct? You got it. Well, it'll be interesting to see that the White House on one end of the street is, is happy. The, Re- the Republicans in Congress are happy. And we'll see if the Democrats in the middle uh, mess this thing up. So uh, should be should be interesting to watch. That's a scorecard for this week, and we'll have one for you next week. Well, another week, another pod. But Franklin, we started off talking about in the scorecard minimum wages. Do you know that there is a little special district in San Diego, California, that has a minimum wage of thirty or more dollars? I did not know that, Joe. The community college district in San Diego has a minimum wage of $30 and a few cents. And evidently, it's based off this MIT study, this MIT logarithm matrix that tells you based on your geographic area, this is what you would make, you need to make to make ends meet. And this big, long algorithm of of kind of interesting that MIT uh, would get involved in this conversation. Do you think cities may start trying to replicate what this little, this is not the city of San Diego. This is the city community college district. And so all the employees within the district and contractors within that district make this $30 minimum wage. Is that a trend we should be watching? Well, certainly labor groups always reference a living wage and um, you know what the living wage is. And it's often public contracts, they try to tie in living wage requirements. So I could see it maybe, maybe, you know, getting, getting some pickup potentially. It ain't cheap to live in Southern California, pal, no matter really where you are. But uh, I I don't expect this is going to sweep the country tomorrow, but it's, it's definitely a little interesting trend line. I will tell you, have you seen that Netflix series, Second Chance You? I have not. 
It's great. Anyway, they're, they have a basketball one. It was, I think it was the last one. And it's at a community college in California. I think it's Oakland. So it's not, you know, technically Southern California, but anyway, that's all I can think about as I think about a community college in, in California. Great show. Check it out guys. Wow. We started off talking about living wages and ended up with a Netflix endorsement. I mean, what, I mean, where else can you get this kind of high level information on one podcast? I mean, entertainment, politics, it's unbelievable. All right, my friends, well, we've made you suffer enough listening to two of us. Uh, we'll have more for you next week. Until then, stay safe, stay informed. We'll talk to you then. 